Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which we are based, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay their respect to their elders past and present. Would you like to introduce yourself uh, just briefly, um, your name and what your current role is? Sure. So my name is Sasha and I'm currently a lecturer with Computer Science and Engineering at UNSW. Living the dream. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you here. Um, yes, before we before we start um, going into and talk about the contents of this episode, um, we'd like to explore a bit about your you know early childhood um, and educational career and maybe uh, talk a bit about you know, how you ended up into pursuing computer science. I, like, I've always loved STEM. I've always, uh, like, just, you know, maths was always my favorite subject when I was at school. Um, and my, both my parents were engineers. And when I was six, um, my uncle built a whole computer with me, um, next to him, like very old school. Um, so I was brought up, um, not in Australia where it wasn't like, um, and so it was, it was quite, quite special. Everything came late to where I was brought up. And so, yeah, so I kind of had this exposure to just technical people. And my uncle also, he liked to take things apart and put them back together, um, have extra parts left over. And I really picked up that bug from him as well. You know, just can't love taking things apart and tinkering and seeing what's extra and what we can do without. Yeah. So I guess that kind of continued through my whole schooling uh, as well. And just all I wanted to do was maths, more maths. Um, and then as I got a bit older, probably like, <clears throat> I don't know, 11, 12, I started to really become interested in computing and computers. Um, and then I don't know, does anyone really know what they want to do when they, when they're in your 11, 12, you just kind of put down anything. Um, I knew I wanted to do engineering. I knew I couldn't do some types of engineering and it was just a process of elimination. And actually in my first year of doing computing, I almost dropped out to go to a pure maths degree. So, oh. um, but I ended up sticking with it. So, yeah. What made yeah. you want to drop and then stick to it after? Uh, you know, first year computing is really hard. Um, mm. You know, your first taste of programming is really hard because you're in a class with, you know, students that have programmed since they were in the womb, what feels like. Um, and you, you know, if it's your first real taste of programming, then you really, um, you really feel it. And because for me, I like to tinker with the hardware bits. Um, mm. Software was not what I like to do. So I guess I was not, I, I was new to programming. Um, I was more, you know, um, putting things together and, and, and more the Lekeng side, but I didn't actually realize that, you know, that was, that was what I, I did do computer engineering because I wanted to do hardware. Oh. Well, yeah, I forgot to intro myself by the beginning, but um, I'm currently studying um, aero and material science, completely unrelated to today's topics. Um, but I, I remember doing comp one five point one when I in first year, um, and I had no prior coding experience back in high school. Um, and it just seemed like, yeah, um, just there were people who were doing like who knew the course inside out. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a lot. And I think because it's like 
well, like, I mean, then I went into education. So then I got a background of that and it's, it's a lot because you're learning a whole new language and people don't, for some reason, they don't see, you know, if you were learning French or Spanish, you know, it's so hard to do. You just learn the language and you just learn the rules of that language. But in computing, you're learning the rules of the language, you're learning the syntax, but you're also learning how to solve problems that you've never solved before. So it's very, very overloading. There's a lot happening and a lot you have to bring together. So it's it's actually, they're really complex courses. Sorry, I, I did a bit of um, research in, into your LinkedIn profile. Um, you, you, had, you did a master's of research in usability of telehealth on the elderly. Well, yeah. I, I was wondering if um, if there was anything interesting um, that you learned from that. Well, I think there's always something interesting. And I guess older people use computing. It's it's very different for them because they didn't grow up with computing. Um, you know, even for me, I didn't really grow up with modern computing, but it's just that I just really love everything about it. So, but it's, it's really hard if you didn't grow up with it. And, you know, um, things like telehealth are really, really important because it allows us, especially in Australia, we have such remote communities it allows us to have, and really this was before the pandemic. I think yeah. if, if anything, the pandemic has shown us how important it is to have these sorts of things in place, but you know, uh, you want to make it approachable, accessible for people that are older to be able to use these and to not be scared of computers and computing. And that's, that's a whole thing in itself. It's quite hard to do. You know, I remember even like when, you know, when my grandmother was around, you know, she couldn't even use the remote control for the TV. You know, I had to cover off half the buttons for her, tape them across, you know, big point arrow to what she needs to press, you know, color them in with nail polish because they're all the same colors. They're tiny. Um, you know, you can barely tell what's going on. So it kind of like, and that's a remote control. That's not a whole system that's able to like measure your blood pressure, you know, weigh you, make sure you've taken the right medication. How do you, how do you put that together? So that was, that was a really, like, that was really interesting work because I got to go out to, um, you know, nursing homes and, and work with the people as well. Um, and kind of see the real, the gaps in like having this system, but then they just, they just couldn't really use it for the most part. They didn't really especially when it's a touch screen, there's no physical affordance to anything. They really struggled with, you know, that they have to press something that doesn't, that's not actually a button. It's just like a, you know, it's a rectangle. Yes, it has some shadowing, but it's, it's very abstract still. It's just that we're so used to these types of concepts, but for older people, it's, it's much harder to, to really use and understand. I think that's really interesting. Um, then what were some of the ways that I guess like you would um, do that? Would you more teach them how to use it or would you change the kind of way or buttons um, look or how physical like it is to kind of press on them, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I think like, and there's a lot of research now in like, like making things more customizable and personal. Actually, I read a, I read an article the other day that you can like, they did this study where they personalized fonts and they found that um, people were able to read faster and comprehend more when they had a font that was like personally selected for them. You know, and that that's like, that's something so little, but it makes such a big difference. And so I think if you're able to customize these interfaces for what that person needs, um, you know, and, and colors like, 
you you got you've got so much like macular degeneration and stuff you know your eyesight gets worse your hearing gets worse it's just part of growing up and so customizing all of those things because perhaps you know your eyesight's great but your hearing's going um and so on and so forth so actually making it fit for the person is really important and how they would use something and it's all about sort of so I was all about hardware until about third year of computing when I uh, first done, like I first did like human computer interaction and it really spoke to me. And that's when I was like, okay, user centered design. This is definitely where, it, you know, where it's at because otherwise I'm creating something that no one can use. Um, so I think having that kind of the interface in between the two is really important and making sure the person can use it. Otherwise, you know, you can have an amazing product that uh, is useless. Yeah, totally agree. That's really true. Yeah. And especially with the um, human computer interaction course, I know like I'm really keen to um, do that course too. I hear like you're taking that um, course as well and as uh, like teaching that course, I guess. I haven't taught it for, for a few years now, but yeah, yeah, I used to teach it. I love that course. Um, but there's, you know, we're now bringing it into Desen as well, um, some of those concepts to give everyone an early exposure to these concepts because otherwise it's an elective. Some people don't do it. And so, I don't know, as computing people, we're very like, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. It doesn't matter that it's cryptic to anyone else and you just got blinkers on. You can't see that um, you're not like the average user in computing. And I think you forget that often. So I think it's really important in the beginning of your degree as well to be exposed to the fact that you are not the standard user. You are someone who's super experienced with technology and computing. You're very comfortable around it. Um, you know, and you can do lots of things that others cannot do. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I think, yeah, I see that you, you're like bringing all like your passions in like um, having the user centric stuff and all the, um, I guess, uh, computer science space all into like what you're teaching in the education um, uh, side of things. And so um, I guess that brings me to like, I'm really curious with how you are finding all the, um, uh, like working as an academic in at UNSW and how like you're able to bring all your passions um, through that as well. Okay. Um... So I was in industry for like 10 years, um, but I have always really loved teaching and uh, I guess the pool was too strong. So I came back, my PhD is actually in education because um, I really was fascinated how people learn. Um, so my, yeah, so like what I love is like the cognitive load stuff because it kind of, it really helps us to understand how we think, how we learn and how to design materials so that they are approachable by, you know, two people. And that's, that's, I guess the human centered side of it as well, because it's how we design interfaces as well and how we, how we make everything so that it's, you know, it's palatable to, to users. How do you actually, you know, it's, it's such, it's actually such a hard thing to do. And design is really, really, really hard to make, you know, to actually make something that is usable is actually a lot harder than it sounds. Um, uh, I guess, I guess before we, um, I don't know, go deeper into the, um, the design 
considerations and features. Um, I was just wondering, because you mentioned yeah, you went into the industry for 10 years. Um, could you like kind of just describe what kind of experiences or learnings you uh, got from there as well? Yeah. Um, I guess lots of stuff of how to work with different types of people. I think, um, you know, the soft skills are really important, how to be a team player and how to communicate with different personalities, um, you know, and make sure that you can kind of come together and still produce something. Um, I worked a long time as a testing engineer as well, which is actually like one of the most, um, well, I think, I think everyone in comp should really, you know, do a little stint as a testing engineer because first, who doesn't like to break things? And that's your whole job. Um, but second, it also really allows you to see, um, you know, the mistakes are always so common. They're almost always, you know, the same issues that you see over and over again. Um, but it also allows you to go across as well, like how to write good requirements and how to make sure that a system is spec'd out well so that you know what on earth you're actually testing. Um, and then it allows, so it kind of allows you to go everywhere um, and poke your nose in everything. Um, and it's it's fun, I think. Well, I think it's fun. Um, mm. Probably others don't. Um, but yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I had I had fun as a testing engineer and then yeah, and then I did like then I was a project engineer so I kind of worked more with the requirement side of things, but having the testing background allowed me to know what kinds of questions to ask and how to create um, you know, user stories and and requirements that are actually measurable and testable and that, you know, you got to talk to the customer, you got to talk to the people that are actually using it you got to find a common ground there as well. So back to that user-centered design. So it allowed me to bring that to the table as well. Sorry, could you elaborate on, on what the role okay. of the project? Yeah. So as a project engineer, I was looking after a system um, and basically uh, like looking after the whole process, kind of like a project manager, but you're, mm, um, right. you, you're on the technical side of things. Uh, okay. Okay. Were there any examples, possible examples, um, you're able to share uh, when working as a project? Um, I'm trying to like, I mean, there's, I think like the hardest part of these jobs is is the fact that you're working in a team of people um, yeah. and we in computing, um, there's a lot of very clever people that um, also think there's a lot of very nice people as well, but we often, you know, we do think we're God's gift to, you know, humankind because we are, um, but, but, you know, like, so it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of like if someone that's the hardest part of the job is you've got three developers, they all think they're solving the right way, right, right. but in fact, that is not the case. In fact, all three of them are wrong and something else is needed. They're not even meeting the requirement, but they are so, they're, they're so set that they've got the right idea over everything else that's the hardest part to manage and and you'll get so much of that um well i found that to be the case i think it's a lot better now because i think at universities they're doing a lot more of like the importance of requirements the importance of like user stories the importance of like teamwork and stuff when i was at uni it was not you know i think it was like third year the first time i saw some requirements and it was very basic as well so it's it's changing. It's slowly shifting to be important aspects as well of computing. Right, right. So, um, so, so to my understanding, it's like understanding 
um, the whole purpose and like, uh, or I guess the, the purpose of, you know, this um, uh, technical application you're, you're creating and not just, you know, I don't know, designing for, um, because you have the technical capabilities. So I don't know. Yeah. So, so this system was like a really, uh, like a technically challenging system um, that is used um, in quite a few cities internationally as well. And it is a infrastructure which is like safety critical and stuff. So you need to have someone who has the technical understanding, but also someone, you know, that has the, the other side of the coin as well, um, like user-centric design understanding. But but you need someone who understands the technical aspect of it as well, so that you because you're you're interfacing with a lot of other systems as well. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. <clears throat> um I guess uh yeah, I guess moving on. Um and, and then you transition back to um your role as an academic, right? I think um, yeah. you came back to UNSW. I did. Um, what what kind of like I don't know, made made you switch or was there a particular experience? Um that you've touched on before, maybe? I've always um, like I've always loved teaching. So I yeah. and uh I got an opportunity to work. I like to do my PhD with John Sweller, who was like the father of cognitive load theory. Um, and Slava Kaluga, who's also, um, you know, like amazing uh, research and just amazing research. So it was just, and I, I really love learning actually, uh, like if I could be a lifelong student, um, sign me up, um, which is, I know a weird thing to say, not, not courses, just more like researching and reading papers and like mm. just learning stuff for the sake of learning, which I think that 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 is missing a little bit everything is about marks these days which is understandable but it makes it really hard to enjoy your learning which is like really what university should be yeah okay that's that's an interesting point we, we can probably circle back to that towards the end um about about how to get through uni and stuff and what kind of mindset um but um i um oh, i guess i guess uh the other point you mentioned about um learning or, or, or the, uh, the the passion for learning is this something you try to um, try to like instill and and um, yeah try, is this something you try to instill in your uh, in your students as well as you teach and, and how do you kind of do this as uh, yeah as, as a lecturer or tutor well I think I don't know I think that and and from when I was a student you know you can really feel when a teacher loves what they do and it kind of, it gives you the vibes as well. And so, I don't know, I'm always excited about a lot of things. So uh, sometimes I'll get into a problem so much that I'll just forget everyone else is there. And I think like people can feel that as well. And then they, you know, kind of everyone else gets excited as well. And I really miss actually having people in the lecture theater because um, I miss like moving around and yeah, I used to have lectures where people would come down and, and I get them to code whilst I talk and stuff. And I don't know. I think that's still missing because that it, it just really, I don't know, it sets the whole mood, but I think it's really just being enjoying what you do and being passionate about it as well. And that's really quite infectious. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's fair. I think the element of, um, in-person or interactive, uh, learning, yeah, has, has been affected by COVID. I think, um, I don't know for one of my courses or they they've been trying to 
integrate um, like interactive tutorials uh, in the middle of live lectures. So it's it's kind of interesting um, as to uh, what different methods um, different courses are doing. Um, I I just wanted to also also um, touch on like because I'm I'm not sure if you've uh, if you've taught actually have yeah. to to ask you have, have you taught um, like younger students as well. I have. Oh, okay, yeah. So I guess um, because uh, because as part of the um, like one of uh EWB's programs, um, we we go out to primary and high schools to teach different engineering modules, um, to kind of you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, develop passion for for STEM and further education in this space. Um, I guess like, yeah. What what are your thoughts on like? Uh, the the idea of like, um, of of volunteering uh, your time as as a as a uni student and like or or no matter where you are I guess, um, and and being able to teach uh, future generations, I just wanted to yeah to if if you could like share some thoughts uh, to ins in in insight uh, some of our volunteers. Yeah, I, I think it's really really important and and I used to do it um, as a student as well and I think. I, I think, you know, not only are you kind of giving something back, but you're actually getting a lot from it as well, you know, and, and seeing, I don't know, I find it very, so my thesis is actually about how small kids get their first understanding of numbers and how they kind of pick up that um, building block of abstract concepts. So I have, like, I've worked with kids before and I just... I mean, if you don't want to work with kids, there's got to be uh, like, they're amazing to work with. They come up with the best ideas because they don't, they're not yet boxed in by these preconceived notions. They're not yet boxed in by any of these like understanding of things that we might have. They, they, they are amazing. I think you get so much out of it. Like mm -hmm. I think more than what you put in kind of thing almost. Um, and you know, one thing that's really important, I think, for kids to see as they are getting, as they are going through the school system is, first of all, all the possibilities of STEM, because for some reason, it's not really, it's not really obvious what the choices are, but also like a diversity of different people in STEM as well. I think it's really important to be able to see someone that you can think, oh, they're like me, I could be this person. And I think that really kind of, you know, encourages you. Like, I guess there's not that many females uh, in computing. You know, I think we're sitting at, I don't know, 15, 20%. It's still pretty poor effort. Um, and then just just diversity in general, you know, it's so important to have different, different, it's, it's important for you to see different types of people doing the same thing that you might be interested in, but also opening that door for you. Because I think actually in Engineers Australia, they had this article that if if in school you're not, your family kind of didn't have the exposure to like engineering or like STEM based subjects, you're mm. pretty much not going to put that down as your choices at uni because they're not, you know, it's not an obvious choice um, unless you've been exposed to it. So exposing students to it early, you know, it gives them options and it lets them know what is possible for them. And also like we just build such cool things. I think kids love that sort of stuff and it's so mm. much fun. Yeah. We're like some of the only people where, you know, we're like, oh, I think, I think I want to build an app and then you can just go and do it. Nothing's stopping you. Yeah, no, I, I, do, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think, 
yeah no, that's that's pretty inspiring um and uh, yeah the, the exposure point yeah i think is is definitely very important um i think without i guess yeah i like looking back at my um experiences yeah, definitely was more in the privileged sense um, and was able to gain that initial exposure. Otherwise, I don't know. I think um, who knows? Who knows where I would have ended up? Um, yeah. Um, you still found your way to STEM. You just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, The it's, it's interesting because um, I think, um, I, I don't know how much, Thought or thought or, or comments you'd have on this topic, but I read a recent article like from SMH saying that um, there were or there was a survey conducted, a um, few thousand teachers saying they would you know leave uh, leave the profession, consider leaving the profession due to various reasons. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like the stitch up the industry, I guess um, as as a oh, as as a whole. Um, I think. Teachers are amazing and the last few years have been so challenging to be a teacher, especially when you're teaching primary school kids. I mean, how do you mm. engage online with a group of, you know, six or seven year olds? It's, it's, it's hard enough to do in the classroom, let alone, you know, when you are just a picture on the screen and they can go off and do whatever they want, distracted by everything under the sun. And it's really, you know, as a teacher, you, you spend like the, I don't, it's, it's such a hard job because you have to plan the lessons. You have to know each child in your classroom. You really have mm -hmm. to know their strengths. You can, and, and they all have varying like levels of expertise, like all they're, they're all at different levels because of the way, you know, like school really, we do school based on years, how old you are. That's what defines where you are at, what you're learning, which I don't know, there are pros and cons for it, I suppose, but then it means that in in the classroom, you might have someone, you know, who's just learning how to read, someone that's, you know, reading chapter books, someone else who's, you know, an absolute, you know, you know, gifted student. Like, so how do you cater to all of those needs? It's very difficult. And, you know, all the reporting that teachers have to do, it, it is all encompassing and a lot yeah. more hours than what the school day is as well. You know, if you, yeah, they do an amazing job. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I don't think people go into teaching because uh, they want to make good money because it's not great money. I think they go into mm. it because they love teaching. And so there's only so long that you can kind of like use and abuse that. You know, it's not it's not enough to do that. They can have better hours, spend more time with their families. And it's a really hard job. Have you ever been in the classroom with like eight-year-old kids? <laughs> yeah, uh, a few times when, on the outreach programs. Yeah, maybe. it's it's hard work. I think yeah. I, you know, I was done after like three hours. I was like, what is this? I'm spending the whole time just trying to like control them, like here, there, everywhere. And, you know, mm. you spend like, you know, I don't know. That's why I think everyone should go and stand in the classroom with kids for like two hours and then they'll realize that's actually, this is not that easy. Yeah. Yeah, I... The yeah uh, the um I think that the impact that teachers have for the you know primary high school teachers is is huge. Um, huge. I don't know about the, the <laughs> appreciation for teachers though. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I um, think in Australia as well we don't. It's not a respected 
as not mm-hmm. it's not as respected a profession as it is in other places around the world and um it's a shame because you're right like i still not just remember but i can like a few teachers made a lasting impact on me and the way they treated me and it wasn't even about anything they taught me it was just about how they treated me and how they made you feel as well about your own abilities and um you know as a person just in general just the more important lessons that they did teach you and and I'll forever be sort of grateful for that mm. yeah yeah interesting yeah <clears throat> um i guess uh yeah i guess no that's interesting i think maybe could move on to uh uh oh we can circle back to the uh designing with accessibility in mind maybe yeah. yeah so i guess um uh i forgot to intro a bit earlier but i'm actually doing software engineering and <laughs> in the dozen course that you're teaching this term and um, i thought your name looked familiar <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's so funny and yeah um i think uh i know that a lot of this course we did um a lot of stuff with accessibility in mind and i feel like some of the insights that you're saying are like too good not to share to i guess a wider audience um uh i guess because not everyone does does in 2000 if they're doing just comp sci or even like any other engineering streams as well and so um uh in terms of learning a bit more with accessibility in design so i guess um to i guess start this conversation off uh, how would you then design uh, just define accessibility um, in the context of design? Okay, so I think I'll have to go back to when I was like five years old, and this is the story that started my obsession with with sort of whether this makes sense or not. So, and I think I shared this story in Desen as well. But here you go; you'll have to hear it again. <laughs> my grandmother had no phone, and her neighbours did have a phone, but both of the neighbours were deaf. Okay, so the phone would ring and the only way that they knew was ringing that the light above their door would would start flickering so unless they were sitting and looking at this door which you know as if you're going to do that for the rest of your day um they wouldn't it's just if they chance to look up and oh that light's flickering yeah i'll answer the phone and you know when you're five or six it just suddenly like kind of gets into your mind like this is insane. Like, how would you solve this problem? This doesn't seem like a difficult problem to solve. Like, and so that kind of started this, like, you know, thinking not that I had the terms for it, not that I knew what any of it meant, but that's, that always stands out to me as kind of like what started me obsessing about these types of solutions and, you know, making something accessible is making it accessible to people with, you know, disabilities, but also then it benefits so many others, you know, you have a slow internet connection, those accessibility elements would benefit you as well. You know, you, I don't know, uh, you've broken your arm today. So then you have limited motor movements. Yeah. Okay. It's only going to be six weeks, but it's still, it still affects how you're going to use something. You know, you're standing outside in the sun, like I am, you can see the sun behind me. So, uh, you know, are you going to squint at the screen? Can you see the screen? What can you actually, so it, it like has much bigger ramifications, um, you know, and also, like it's like 15% of the population has some sort of disability. Why would you, why would you not consider them in your design? That is, that is a lot of people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess in terms of like, I guess, morally and ethically, you know, 
how else, you know, why, why would we continually not include them in society? And so much of our society now functions online and there is, everything is online. It would, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, and it doesn't make sense to do that. Why wouldn't you try and, you know, develop something that really, um, is for everyone. And if, you know, if you're just designing for, you know, just the average user, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, definitely. That's so true. Like the importance of taking into account all the accessibility um, kind of things, like you said, can also be applied to like the general population as well. I know in the um, lectures that you had that really good example of um, uh, how the typewriter was um, created was because I guess um, uh, the person creating it wanted to have their blind lover to be able to write um, messages to them without having to have like a scribe for them and I thought that was like a really good example of how um, you would uh, build for accessibility but then it becomes like relevant to yeah. the rest of it. I always I love those you know everything really start you know even text messages it started as something for deaf people and then they realized hang on a second it's not using a lot of bandwidth this is excellent and you know no one even calls anymore. Everyone just texts. So it had such a much wider reach as well. Lots of these concepts start out as, you know, an accessibility concept and then it's, you know, and then it is so much bigger than, you know, than, than just pigeonholing. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's really, these are really, and it's so easy to, you know, to incorporate some of these even simple things. So it's, frustrating when when no one thinks about them or they're an afterthought um they don't come in and because you should really be thinking about it to start with as well not you know oh we haven't done any accessibility right, right let's just pop in a few buttons and and tick a few boxes done so it's yeah yeah that's quite true yeah i guess um in that kind of context um that would be what we'd consider like inclusive design i guess and i remember you mentioned how that's a bit different to, uh, I think, universal design. Yeah. Yeah. So universal design is designing for as many people as possible to use this, you know, one thing. And then um, accessibility is, is almost part of inclus inclusive design because inclusive design is designing for people with disabilities. So they all relate, but they're all slightly different because inclusive design is including everyone in your design, you know, and it's something as simple as, you know, um, the drop down, you know, having Mr. and Mrs. and, you know, and that's it, you know, well, well, what if I don't want any, either one of those, like, I've, what if I don't define myself as a Mr. or Mrs. or a Miss, you know, then what happens then, you know, I'm left to feel maybe lesser than, and there is that you've got to put something down. It, usually it's a, you know, a drop box that, that won't let you just not put anything down. So, you know, that's something so simple that you can do that that includes so many more people yeah definitely these like small frustrations can like really be i guess accounted for if we yeah thought about it in like yeah. the really early stages i guess and i guess like um in terms of making those de decisions to um influence how you design stuff with accessibility in mind how would you i guess um, go about that to kind of make sure that you are inclusive and include everyone um, in like the early stages of when you're designing something. 
Yeah, so it comes to being involving people with varying needs as well early on in the process, testing with people of varying needs as well early on. But having those personas and scenarios centered around um, people, you know, with differing needs as well, so that you're not just, you, you don't just have three personas that are really all the same thing. So it's, you know, it's having someone there always at the forefront that, you know, your user users story is centered around that you're always keeping it at the forefront and then testing it with those actual users. And I think, you know, Microsoft, um, they did a whole thing where they, you know, with their Xbox, like with the like accessible gaming and stuff, you know, they actually invited people in that, that had accessibility requirements and they really kind of workshopped with them, what they use, how they use it, how they play, what is important, what's not as important. And they really structured kind of the whole experience around that. So they talked actually to the people that it's for, which, you know, you'd be surprised how often that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's so true. I think, Yes, that's like really interesting. So I guess we've talked about, yeah, how we um, collect all that information for the different problems that people with accessibility um, kind of struggle with. And then once we have all the um, kind of uh, problems, then what are some like ways we might go about solving for accessibility um, in, in like that regard? So um, would if someone is um if someone is does have an accessibility in hard hearing um would it just be to uh provide a second um medium to look for it and what are some decisions in terms of like what that second medium would be and all that kind of stuff if that makes sense yeah i so i guess you i mean you've got the guidelines to kind of help you along and the guidelines have examples um, in them and potential solutions, but that, you know, sometimes those potential solutions also box you into solutions. So, you know, the world's your oyster. You talk to that person, find out how they do things on a daily basis. How do they interact with what you're trying to design for them? You know, how would they interact with this? What, what, what is their relationship to it? What, what, what do they do on a daily basis? You know, the hard of hearing, how does it impact their life? And that kind of really helps you build a whole picture of how you can, what solution you can have for them as well, you know, because, you know, I mean, obviously transcripts, subtitles, uh, all of those things are, are easy things that you can implement straight away, but it's not always possible. So what else, you know, what else is there? And you only get that when you can empathize with the user. So you go out and you understand what it is that they do on a daily basis. So you really understand their needs yeah definitely yeah just for people who might not be doing the um design 2000 in the um send stream the guidelines um that you were referring to i think the um website guidelines for accessibility yeah the web content accessibility guidelines that was like really interesting when you talked about that and also some small aspects of i guess the look of an interface and designing that for accessibility, such as I think font um, font decisions um, being serif or sans serif and all that. And I remember um, reading lecture slides for another lecturer who um, they had blue text on, no, a blue background and black text on top. And, um, and then I think a serif font as well. And I was wondering why I was having trouble reading it. And then I, 
I just immediately remembered your lecture where you were like, oh, there's a contrast ratio where that might make it difficult. And also the um, yeah. sour plants. So, yeah, it's, I mean, and it's like small things, but they impact everyone. So, you know, you, you don't wear glasses, do you? I mean, I wear contacts, but, but even I would not be able to, uh, you know, some blue, black on blue. Oh, what were they <laughs> thinking? Why wouldn't you make that white? That would have a very small contrast ratio. That would not pass the guidelines. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I think um, uh, you've also taken these uh, accessibility considerations a lot in the gaming sphere, which I really love how you use examples of gaming in the lecture slides. It does make it a lot more relatable because I think the Venn diagram between like software engineers and gaming, yeah. they're like the same almost, I think. <laughs> but um, I think you bring a good point in one of your lectures where how do you make gaming a bit more accessible if part of the game is like kind of specific like I think one example you used was how do you make Mario Kart like available for people who cannot see yeah you know that's really hard I've tried I put a blindfold <laughs> on um and like I tried to check everything that I could do to see whether you could really do it or not uh it's it's and there's uh i forgot what the oh, i forgot what there's a website that rates every game um on accessibility out of 10 and it like kind of tells you if you can play it or not um but i think you know these are important things that are coming out like yeah i can't think of a way to do it like mario kart without being able to see but i'm sure there is a way you know um it just it's just left to figure out what is that way you could try and and you know I'm sure you can, because you can have haptic feedback when you've gone to the sides, you know, of the lanes that will, you know, buzz to let you know that you're hitting the sides. Um, and you can have a different, like, you can have varying pulses to let you know, if, you know, someone's coming up behind you, which it's already doing. It already pulses when someone, so there's, you know, and then you can have like the feedback to let you know to stay in your lanes or like to indicate where you're going. You could still have sound to also um, you know, build the path for you and stuff. So that there's there's things that you can do, which, you know, it could actually make a really exciting game. Right? Off I go after this. <laughs> I'm really curious, like, do you have, like, a background in, like, I think game design or making, like, ethical game design? Because, like, you use it as, yeah, a lot of examples and I'm like, you must play a lot of games or you, like, just know a lot about that. Yeah, so... I love board games and uh, I used to play a lot of games in my younger years, a lot of games. Um, I really stopped because, you know, I have the weird, uh, like my vestibular system, when the 3D games just first started, they were very jarring and I used to vomit a lot when I played them. That's kind of when I stopped playing as much. And I really, I, this is why I still love Mario because you can play, you know, 2D, no problems. <laughs> it doesn't jar, but um yeah, so so um, I've been very interested in how like the design thinking process can be applied to like game design as well. And because game design is all about a story that you're telling, it's not, you know, the development stuff comes much later. First, you need to actually design something that's interesting and that's a story and that's, you know, that kind of sings to the person and keeps someone playing and keeps them interesting and interested and engaged. And I think, yeah, and there's going to be a course. I got so excited. I we're reviving a course that hasn't run for nine years. It's going to be the game design workshop, and it's yeah, it's going to be all about game design and how to tell that story and how to make something that's amazing. 
Oh, do you, as a side note, do you know what that course code is? <laughs> uh, is it four four two? Oh my gosh, I'm teaching the course and I don't know what that four four two one. I think. Okay, I just need yeah. to jot that down. Thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll do, we can definitely note that down <laughs> and help promote that. No, it's it's interesting. Um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just wondering because um, it's it's uh, so obviously the designing accessibility with mind. Um, for these uh, games is pretty important because um, it enables more people to play these games. I was just wondering if there were any um, further, like uh, like whether this could be applied or, or like these improvements could be taken into like real world situation, if that makes sense, or if there's any instances of that. Yeah, and, you know, like for me, you know, the, the start of it is really like, so when I was a kid, I mean, even now, one of my cousins has, um, like he's on a list for a heart transplant. So he's always, he was born with a congenital heart condition. So he couldn't, couldn't really run or anything because he was always out of breath. And so as kids, you can either leave him behind, which is not that nice, or you modify all of your games to fit a different like tempo and you know you cut down the running but you add something else that he can do and so those ideas I think everyone is doing them you know we, we were not the only ones that were modifying our games based on you know the abilities of the people there or what they can do and so I think that's something and that's you know young kids playing games it's not even you know as grown-ups why do we suddenly decide that that's no longer time to do that like why wouldn't we you know make small changes to to include everyone as well and so all of this i guess the reason i love the game design and accessibility so much is because these are like really these are stories and engaging experiences it allows people to participate but also if they can do it i'm sorry you know a simple news website can do it you know can do a better job then as well like it's it's much harder to implement these types of things in games than it is in in you know simple information based websites as well. So I don't know, you know, if the games are starting to move that way, which is finally it's time to, then it would be amazing if everyone kind of started to put that at the foreground as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. When I was growing up as well, um, I enjoyed playing different types of games um, like mobile games and PC and stuff. Um, I was just wondering if uh, but oh, but, but as I was playing this, there was also a strong notion from my parents, you know, to, you know, not not let me play and focus on other things as well. Um, I was just wondering, you know, what your what your thoughts were on that, and whether you think there are, you know, potentially other benefits, um, to yeah, the, the side of gaming that people can learn. I mean, everything in moderation, isn't it? You know, then, yeah. play a game, go outside, play another game. But I think I don't know. Um, I guess. Yeah, like I've got young kids and, you know, I'll play Mario Kart with them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I love Mario Kart, so it doesn't really count. But it means that everyone's involved in the game together. I think that's that's a big part of it. The whole point mm -hmm. of gaming is that I think it, the big part of it is that social connection and community. And I think if you're playing together, if you, I don't know, I guess everyone's always against screens. But, I mean, they have a place in our life. We all look at our screens and isn't it better to be able to learn how to use those types of things responsibly and be able to, it's only a problem if you can't stop um, as is everything, you know, in life. If you, if you know, I'm going to play for a few hours, well, why not? If you, if you're enjoying it and it provides you, you know, stress relief or whatever else, if, if 
just if you're enjoying it, if you're having fun, it's important to have fun in life. Mm. Yeah, that kind of makes me think about like when you said if you can stop playing games or not um, kind of thing. when you discuss um the idea of like i guess dark patterns and all that so like in like um uh in in like when you're when you have a app or something um those dark patterns can occur and i guess what might be the balance between um that uh keeping your um users to keep using the app versus um the ethical i guess moral uh boundaries of the dark patterns and if you wanted to explain what dark patterns were as well yeah so i mean dark patterns are really patterns that are designed not for the good of the people things to keep you going or things to like trick you or things that not help you basically and really um you know they're, they're becoming illegal uh for the most part then i guess there's a space there for like questionable patterns that are not quite dark patterns but they're questionable um and you really you really don't want to um yeah you really i don't know look you're right you're writing the moral high ground but if you've ever looked at youtube for kids my goodness that's 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 a lot of questionable patterns right there um and i don't know how would i feel if i worked for them i don't know i don't know i don't know it's it's yeah. a hard you know that but that's not a good design that's not like that's not morally that's a bit mm. interesting i mean it's it's good to hear that there's some kind of body out there that that you know checks um these these uh black patterns of uh, dark sorry dark patterns yeah yeah well you can you can complain same as yeah. <laughs> and then and mm. then yeah so there's a, a whole series of them that are illegal interesting mm. um yeah i guess oh, uh i guess a bit conscious of time um in the i guess in the remaining few minutes we might just skip to the very last point or that point about um i guess yeah maybe maybe just your two cents on uh uh for students getting through or still studying in university right now um yeah like what what kind of advice and uh do you have for students? i enjoy it it is like it's it's i know it's really hard and and the trimesters are very intense there's a lot of work to do um and you know really nothing is wrong if you feel like doing two subjects a term and your degree takes you longer you know try because you want to do other things outside of studying as well you know play sport play games you know go out with friends that's what this time is for as well it's not just you know it's to actually enjoy the learning and to be able to have the time to you know go and read something extra if you want to or go and read up on a certain topic but just mm -hmm. yeah be nice be nice to yourselves the last two years i think for students have been quite difficult and um you know things are coming back but very slowly i feel like everyone's got covid um and it's like you know, then, you know, everyone's exhausted and they still have to study and it's really taking a toll. So I think be nice to yourselves and don't worry if your degree takes you longer. Why not? Who cares? Mm. My partner took seven years to do a four-year degree. He had a great time. Uh, that's that's quite relieving. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, to be honest, I've extended my degree as well, partially. Um, but, yeah, I think in the grand scheme, it, it doesn't matter too much no so, it doesn't yeah. at all you've got your whole life to like mm. to work in industry and to do all of that stuff this is your time to 
I don't know, have fun and travel and explore like what you want to do as well. Cause you want to be doing a degree that brings you joy where it's not really that much of an effort to study these courses because that's what you'll be doing then for eight hours a day or more. So you, you kind of, you want to be enjoying it as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, were there any other points that, or any other points you wanted to raise, Winnie? I think that's pretty much everything. Yeah. It was like, yes, had a really good discussion on um, the accessibility and your whole journey as well, um, which is like exciting because, yeah, I just really like love like what you say about um, accessibility in Design 2000 and just mm -hmm. really thought it, it's a really good conversation to have and share too. I'm so glad that it's getting out there as well because I was so worried that people are going to be like oh this is a bit boring um so because I get very excited by it because I think there is there's so much to it but this is really thank you so much it's really nice to know that um you know that students are enjoying the content as well because yeah I think that's important as well yeah. I think Desen is there for you to enjoy I think it's a great course not biased of course but I think it's <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of fun. It's, you know, you get to solve a problem. That's what engineering is all about. Mm. No, I, I, I think it's interesting. Even as, uh, I guess, someone who doesn't take the course, the, the topics talked about is pre-eliminating. I think, I don't know, like as a as a person who doesn't put as much consideration into these things, it's like I, I see more of the, the end products or outcomes, like the changes that get made. And sometimes I'm like, uh, I think... I think recently, um, Gmail, um, they, the interface kind of changed recently mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really like the change at first, but it, it's interesting, like that, you know, a lot of thought gets put into these types of, uh, these things, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'm happy to kind of wrap up here. Um, thank you both for having me. Is it, no, thank you as well.